This is Jack Williams. Welcome to an EWTN Open Line week-long event, The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know, hosted by Mary Hassan. Today's episode is Catholic Pastoral Care for Transgender Issues with Father Philip Bochansky, Executive Director of Courage International. After the program, we'll be back with EWTN's Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan. But first, the transgender movement, What Catholics Need to Know, starts now. I'm Mary Hassan, your guide to this series on the transgender movement, What Catholics Need to Know. Join us for our discussion today with Father Philip Boshansky, the Executive Director of Courage International, as we look at the pastoral concerns around guiding people who are experiencing gender dysphoria and other questions related to transgender issues. Join us. Jesus answered, He who made them from the beginning made them male and female. Father Boshansky, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, I'm delighted that you're discussing this topic with us today, the pastoral care regarding people and families who are experiencing questions and and, uh, struggles around issues of uh, sexual identity. So your background is that you're a priest from the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, and you're the executive director of Courage International, which I'm, I'm pleased to serve on the board of. So with all that breadth of, of pastoral experience, we're delighted to have you here for this discussion. Thanks very much. So let's start with the word welcome, because one of the things that that I hear, and I'm sure you do as well, is people feel like the church is not welcoming towards individuals or families who are struggling with questions of identity, uh, just as with same-sex attraction. So help us understand uh, how the church welcomes people and and how we should look at that. Sure. Well, I think, uh, as always, the best place to start is the example of the Lord himself. And I think one place where we we can kind of understand the the welcome that he's thinking of is uh, his uh, is what we call the bread of life discourse, his sermon at the synagogue in Capernaum. So this is the day after he uh, he walked on the water and multiplied the loaves and the fish, and people came to Capernaum looking for him because they had been fed the day before, and he offers them uh, in place of uh, physical bread and fish himself as the bread of life. And in the course of that, kind of telling them who he is and why he's there, almost as an aside and almost because it's, you know, it's bubbling up in his heart. He says, uh, everyone that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not reject anyone who comes to me. So with the Lord, that welcome to those who come to him looking for grace, for redemption, for help, uh, is always absolute. And our welcome has to be absolute as well. Come, you're welcome, you'll not be rejected. But the welcome has a purpose. Uh, A few verses later, the Lord says, uh, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to my father and learns from him comes to me. And in fact, he says, no one can come to me unless my father draws him. So I think what that's teaching us is that the welcome that we have to extend is absolute and it has a purpose. He wants us to share the word. This is the, de- the definition of friendship that he uses in the Last Supper. I call you my friends because I've told you everything I heard from my father. So the welcome is come, you are welcome, you will not be rejected, and come close because we have something important to talk about. 
And in this case, it's who is the human being and what, how must our morality reflect our identity? That's excellent. I, I love that, that image, you know, welcome, come, we're accepted, but there's a purpose to draw near to the Lord right. and, and have an open heart receptivity. And, and I think we always, you know, as pastoral ministers, just as fellow parishioners, if someone shows up at the door of our parish, we have to assume and presume on their goodwill, right? Mm -hmm. They want to know, right. uh, they want to live the faith. Uh, they may not know exactly how to do that. Mm. And that's why we're there. Right. Uh, it reminds me of uh, something that Cardinal Vincent Nichols, the Archbishop of Westminster in London once said, he was actually talking to a group who had gathered for mass, who experienced same-sex attraction and questions about their gender identity. He said, the church loves us enough to meet us where we are. The church loves us too much to leave us where we are if where we ought to be is closer to understanding and living God's plan. So again, we, we welcome people. That doesn't mean agreeing with every thought that they might have or uh, being able to approve every decision that they might make, but it means affirming the goodness of the person, mm -hmm. uh, welcoming them and sharing the truth with them because we believe that the truth comes from God who is not only the way and the truth but also the life and absolute love. Okay, great. So let's unpack then the idea of pastoral care. So at, at its broadest level, the church or a, a priest, a bishop, there's a, a pastoral concern, not just for the individual in front of them, but for the church at large. So, so first, perhaps maybe you can unpack the idea of pastoral care um, on a, a larger, broader level, and then we'll talk about what that might look like in terms of the individual and the family. Sure, pastoral means uh, shepherd, uh, the role of a shepherd. And so the first thing that a shepherd has to do is protect the flock, uh, guide the flock to good pastures, and feed them with something substantial. And so a, a priest or a bishop who uh, is in a, a, an opportunity to teach has to speak very clearly because as Jesus says, he's the bread of life. The word of God is what feeds us. Um, so it's important for anyone who's in a pastoral role, especially those who preach and teach in the church, to know the church is teaching both what it is, but also where it comes from, mm -hmm. how to understand it themselves and explain it well, and then to be able to speak the truth in love. Uh, it's a topic that everybody in the pew is at least going to have heard before. I right. mean, certainly it's part of our discussion as a society. It's a topic that lots of people in the pew have questions about and probably don't know uh, exactly where to turn for, for good resources. Uh, and it's a topic we have to acknowledge that's affecting more and more people in our congregations, whether individually or in their families. Yeah, so one thing that I've often heard from, from priests, they'll say, well, I don't know what to say. Or there's a definite sense that they're, they're afraid that they're going to be turning people away mm -hmm. and hurting people. So how do they overcome that? What do they need to understand? And, and I'll just throw in one thought here that, that another priest had said. He said when he talks about these sensitive issues, he'll explain what the church teaches, but then he invites people to come to bring their questions, to talk with him. In other words, it's not my way or the highway. It's this is the truth, but let's talk about it. Let's help you understand. Absolutely. I think practically speaking, I wouldn't 
advise uh, a priest to give a homily just on this topic. Right. Um, but we, there are plenty of opportunities, both in terms of the scripture and certain feast days through the year, where we can talk about the goodness of God's plan for the human person, for the human body, for complementarity, for mm -hmm. marriage. Mm -hmm. And in the context of that, that's a chance to mention uh, things like sexual identity and questions about sexual identity, sexual attraction, and how the church's teaching on that comes not from a desire to oppress or marginalize, but from an appreciation of the goodness of the person. When Pope Francis talked about the complementarity of man and woman, he said it's something that's not just good, it's beautiful, right? right. And right. so to talk, to preach about that and be ready for follow-up conversations after Mass with good resources that people can take home with them, mm -hmm. but also with an, uh, an availability to the parish, um, if a priest is going to bring this up in any kind of direct way, he should also be planning for adult faith formation mm. in the in, you know soon after he's going to preach on that. That's a great idea. Yeah. As another pa practical step, I would say, uh, whenever people have questions, especially if their questions are um, more in the form of criticisms, um, the thing to do is not to try and have that conversation in five minutes in the vestibule, mm. but to say to someone, look. This is how we can get in touch about uh, making some time to sit down. Um, if you're more comfortable, I'll come to you or you can come to the rectory. But this is a big topic and it obviously means a lot to you. Let's not try and, and figure it out right here. Let's, let's make some time to sit down and talk about this. Because I think overarchingly, what we're always trying to do is affirm the dignity and the, the humanity and the goodness of the person right in front of us. Right. And if we if we affirm everything that we possibly can, mm -hmm. then when we can't approve of something, mm -hmm. um, that comes not as a judgment, uh, but as an extension of the love that we've been demonstrating by treating the person with compassion. So let's get more particular. When someone comes to you, let's say mm -hmm. they, they say, I'm struggling with questions of identity mm -hmm. and I've, I've long felt like I'm born in the wrong body and, and all of those things. So where's the place to begin? How do you engage that conversation in a way that helps the person know that they're loved but really helps to open the door towards towards a deeper look mm -hmm. at both where they're going and what they, they need to know. I, I think whenever we uh, need to deliver um, a radical invitation, you know, that the Lord is looking for this response, but and I know it's going to require a lot from the person. Again, we imitate him, I think, particularly in the uh, his encounter with the rich young man. Mm -hmm. That was a big sacrifice he was calling that man to make. Uh, and Mark tells us that when Jesus, before Jesus gave him that invitation, that Jesus looking at him loved him, right? Yeah. Everybody, I think, at the heart of it just wants to be seen and known and loved. Yeah. Um, and so we need to find a way to do that. And I think pastorally, I try and start just about every conversation with, with uh, someone who I'm meeting for the first time with, tell me your story. Mm -hmm. People don't always like open-ended questions. They yeah. say, well, what do you want to know? Whatever you, <laughs> whatever you want to tell right, me. Where should right. I start? Wherever you think is important. Right, right. But that's a way to help people feel seen and heard. Mm -hmm. um, and it gives me a chance to respond to whatever particular question or doubt or fear they might have because I can get a sense of where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and I think once we've had a chance to, to talk about their story, not just about this one admittedly important topic, but mm -hmm. who they are and where they come from right, and where they're right. going and who they love and who loves them, et cetera, um, then we're able to, to both hear their concerns and start to address them uh, in that context, starting with, 
I know that you're expressing these questions or concerns or fears, but tell me what you like about who you are. Tell me what it, you know, how it affects your relationships. I think we don't often, we, we tend to think of uh, sexual identity, gender roles in terms of the externals, yeah. but there's something at the heart of each person. Um, Pope John Paul, when he wrote about the dignity of woman, said that motherhood is linked to the, per, the personal structure of the woman and the personal dimension of the gift. In other words, there's something about being a man or a woman that it, we're, we're kind of innately prepared for fatherhood or motherhood. And then the gift of ourselves that we have to give is shaped by that. He says the, the, the ability to be a mother uh, just shapes a woman's personality, whether she has children of right. her own. Um, and so I think what that means and what I try to get across is that if a man is going to be happy as a man, it's because he's learned to love as a father has to love mm. and he's living spiritual fatherhood. And if a woman's going to be happy as a woman, uh, it's because she's learned what, how to love as a mother and she's exercising spirit, at least spiritual motherhood. So I think to talk to people about where that might already be present in their life mm. and right, what it right. might look like in their future helps them to see, I have a vocation. May not be what I, uh, what I thought about or what my parents want for me or whatever, but um, I, I really can find happiness. Even if my idea of how to live that out day to day, um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily like to dress how other people of my sex dress or do what they do or talk like they talk, but yeah, spiritual fatherhood or spiritual motherhood appeals to me. And, and I think if we can help them to see that and to live it out, they experience it for themselves. Yeah, I, I think that's tremendously significant because one of the things that our culture has done is we've forgotten that our sexual identity has something to do with that call to be a mother or father with reproduction. And I talk to a lot of young people who, as they're, they're looking at their futures, they're thinking about careers, or they may be thinking about a, a life partner, but only in a sort of a sexual or companionate sense. Mm -hmm. And they haven't really even thought of themselves in that sense of being created for motherhood or fatherhood, mm -hmm. which, as you say, doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be physical. You're a father. You're, you know, a spiritual father. But mm -hmm. but to understand that dimension of ourselves, because then it's not just about well, I can't do anything until I change everything. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. which can be paralyzing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I mean, so many people that I talk to um, about issues of sexual attraction or sexual identities. I just want a normal life. I want what everybody else has, and I don't know where to find that. And I think if we can see uh, that God creates us different on purpose, he creates each of us specifically with our sexual identity on purpose, then he's shaped our hearts to respond to this particular way of living it out. So what about families? Because I, I talk with many families, as I'm sure you do as well, who have been touched by this issue. And oftentimes there's alienation mm -hmm. between parents and children or sibling to sibling because of this, because especially when someone has identified as transgender, they've rejected uh, their sexual identity, their given identity as male or female. And so they've started down this path, perhaps of medically altering their body. Mm -hmm. That's it's a huge source of pain and anxiety for parents about the well-being of their children, but but there's also alienation present. So how can families, if they're caught in that situation where there may be hostility, acrimony, how do they proceed? What's what do they do? Well, I think the first thing is not to panic, right? Um, 
I think parents often have that kind of emergency room mentality. Something's <laughs> wrong. How do I fix it? Mm. Um, and that's noble and yeah. and good, but not really possible here. Mm. Um, and I think what what parents really their primary role. Remember, Saint Paul says all fatherhood is delegated from God the Father. Mm. Right. I think their primary role is to. Um, be a source of stability, to be a source of affirmation whenever possible. And mm -hmm. affirmation and approval are different. Mm -hmm. um, you, you should be able to say, I love you very much, but I think this is a bad decision. Right. Um, so it's affirmation of the person, of the person, not of the expressed transgender exactly. identity, per se. I think parents need to know that they're not betraying the faith. Uh, by not talking about the, the Sixth Commandment all the time right, or, right. or Genesis 2 all the time, um, that they can have normal conversations with their, with their loved ones. Um, and also that, uh, that the, all the work that they've done to share the faith is not suddenly all meaningless or falling apart. Um, that helps to get rid of defensiveness that mm. says, you know, they're rejecting me by I rejecting the wrong. church. And, yeah, yeah, or blaming themselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that'll help in their conversation mm -hmm. too, because then the, their son or daughter doesn't get the message, um, you're making this all about you, or your love for me is contingent on me figuring and fixing this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to just kind of be with them, be as normal as possible. And then when it comes to things that their, their son or daughter are asking them to say or do, to distinguish the action from the person. Mm -hmm. And to say, you know, I love you, and I'm not asking you not expecting you to, to change everything about yourself right. so that I can love you because that would go against your conscience. All I'm asking in return is that you don't expect me to say or do something that would violate my conscience for the, so that you can believe that I love you. Right. And I think to be able to say that calmly, cheerfully is mm -hmm. important. Yeah. And then to look to Our Lady at the foot of the cross. You know, she was his mother. She wanted to take his suffering away. She would have liked to be up there instead of him. But she was also his disciple, and she knew that she had to let his plan and the Father's plan unfold in their time according to their way. And what she did was stand by him, support and encourage him, pray where he could mm. hear her, um, mm. and just be with him so that he wouldn't be going through that alone. Yeah, I think parents need to, to embrace the fact that we're not doing this, we're not carrying this, you know, this burden that we feel or the, even That's our right. child's pain, we're not carrying that by ourselves. The Lord has right. a much bigger plan and, and uh, will carry that burden for us. So perhaps in our, our last minute here, we could just, you could just offer a word of encouragement to families or individuals who are experiencing problems in this area. Certainly. Uh, there's a reason that we call God Father. There's a reason that we call the church Mother. Um, and as much as we want to help one another, to help our loved ones, to help ourselves, um, we really have to uh, turn to the virtue of hope and trust in God's plan. God's either omnipotent or he's not. He's either omniscient or he's not. His love endures forever or it doesn't. But if those things are true, then as St. Paul says, what are we worried about? Yeah, that's, that's a good note to end on. So thank you very much, Father. Really thank appreciate you. it. My pleasure. The Catholic Church is deeply engaged on the issue of gender ideology for two reasons. One, as we discussed in another episode, because gender ideology proposes a false understanding of the human person that can't be reconciled with Christian anthropology. The Church's mission is to evangelize, to bring the gospel to all. But hearts and minds shaped by the deceptive messages of the transgender movement will be resistant to the gospel and less receptive to Catholic teaching. 
especially when it's promoted to children in their formative years. Gender ideology undermines catechesis. It confuses young people and hinders their self-understanding, spiritual growth, and relationships with others. The church also cares deeply about persons affected by the transgender movement. She recognizes that the lies at the heart of gender ideology undermine human flourishing and often lead vulnerable young people down the path of self-harm and irreversible consequences. So how can the church respond pastorally to those experiencing gender dysphoria or who express a transgender identity? Well, in pastoral care, truth and love are inseparable. Our hearts must be in the right place, filled with love, desiring the good of those we serve, and confident in the truth of Christ. We have to know where we're going if we're going to lead others. In Evangelii Gaudium, Pope Francis reminds us, quote, that spiritual accompaniment must lead others ever closer to God in whom we attain true freedom. Some people think they are free if they can avoid God. They fail to see that they remain existentially orphaned, helpless, homeless. They become drifters, never getting anywhere. To accompany them would be counterproductive if it became a sort of therapy supporting their self-absorption and ceased to be a pilgrimage with Christ to the Father." End quote. Pastoral care begins with knowing the truth and being convinced of the goal to help the other person move closer to Christ, freely integrating the truth with the practical circumstances of their lives. It's important to emphasize from the outset that every person, regardless of expressed identity, is a beloved child of God who needs to know God's love and the welcome embrace of the church. All persons must be treated with dignity and respect. But authentic pastoral care should not be confused with a false compassion which mistakenly validates erroneous beliefs or encourages harmful behavior in hopes of keeping the peace or building trust. An individual in psychological distress because of gender dysphoria experiences real pain and anguish, and they should be responded to with love, patience, and affirmation of their personal dignity and value as a human being. Although the person's body is healthy, their interior is wounded. Research shows that the expression of a transgender identity often arises for complicated reasons. We don't understand them all. Some therapists believe it serves as a psychological defense or a maladaptive coping mechanism in response to adversity, trauma, loss, or abuse. Many detransitioners, those are young people who underwent medical or surgical transition and then reverted back to their true sexual identity, have shared that they pursue gender transition in the mistaken belief that it would solve their problems and relieve their pain. But transition only masked the underlying roots of their distress. A person who is suffering may need the assistance of a Catholic therapist, not a gender therapist, someone who can help them sort through complicated feelings in light of the truth. Young people who express a, a transgender identity or believe they are born in the wrong body need the truth. No one is born in the wrong body. Sex cannot change, but feelings can. It's important to understand the why behind these feelings and to see if there are other influences at work. Children and adolescents rely on the adults in their lives to help them make sense of confusing feelings or situations. 
not to lie to them or f facilitate their pursuit of an unattainable goal to change sex. These issues are complicated and seeking expert guidance is important. At the same time, all Catholics need to know that it is unjust to validate a person's false beliefs about who they are or to encourage the person to pursue hormones or surgery which alter the person's appearance while destroying the natural functions of a healthy body. These interventions can lead to sterility, loss of sexual function, and have unknown long-term health risks. And they ultimately fail to achieve what the person wants. No transition can ever make the person's body actually function like the opposite sex. So the solution to this pain is not to reject one's given sexual identity as male or female or to undergo a gender transition. Only one path leads to true healing and wholeness, the eventual integration of the person's feelings with the reality of their given sex. Please know that if you or someone you love is experiencing pain or difficulties because of transgender issues, many, many people are praying for you. And remember, you are beautifully and wonderfully made. God loves you and wants to show you the amazing plan He has for your life. Trust in Him. So there we have the final episode of the transgender movement, what Catholics need to know. Uh, just a great blessing uh, for us here at EWTN and for really the church in America and ch the church across the world for what uh, um, Mary Hassan has provided for us in this this beautiful uh, uh, mini-series that she's, that she's worked with us to put together. Uh, we have our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, who is joining us to kind of put a bow on this uh, special week-long open line event. And, you know, the, right, out of the, right out of the gate, um, you know, Father Bochansky and uh, Mary Colin address the, really the overarching myth over dealing with folks on a pastoral level and that is that that the church is not welcoming to people of, you know, various persuasions, especially this one. And and I really liked how Father Bochansky went to sacred scripture to illustrate that that's just not true. No, because the world today, especially the transgender movement, is defining welcoming as complete acceptance of who you are as you self-identify. And, of course, the church's perspective, as you noted, uh, Father went to sacred scripture, is who we are as God intended us and intended all of his creatures to be in a loving relationship, first of all, with him. And the scriptural example is the example of the, of the good shepherd he, that he used, because you can't be a good shepherd and simply want to you know, affirm your sheep. If they're being attacked by the wolves, you're going to fight and defend them. Uh, if they're caught in the brambles, you're going to go into the brambles and you're going to get them out. So this is the way the church looks at it, with the loving desire of Christ to 
to rescue us from our own personal situations, moral and otherwise. And this is quite a bit different than what you will find in our culture today, in our educational systems, uh, in the medical pra- pra- professions, as all of the, the previous speakers this week have so well explained. I mean, the, uh, the presentations this week have been absolutely wonderful, and I highly recommend uh, the, the book that was written that is a collection of, of, of all of this material, essentially, um, on which the series is based, and all of the presenters in present in showing that, you know, I think have have clarified all of these issues, and of course, Father deals with this specifically in dealing uh, as the head of Courage International, which is a group that was established to help um, gay gay men specifically, men with a homosexual orientation, uh, to. Uh, refined the chastity that God wills for them, that desires of all of us, chaste in our vocations, whatever our vocations are, marriage, single, um, uh, priestly, religious, and so on. And so to help them refine that. Uh, and it's not abandoning, uh, abandoning a person to their situation, even if it's foisted on them by the culture or foisted upon them by schools that uh, affirm them in their uh, misguided notions of themselves, uh, that's not what the church's role is. We have a lot of secular institutions who are happy to do that. We have governments that are happy to do that. Uh, and But that's not why the church is on earth, but to save those souls and to help lead them to the truth. And so he's had a lot of experience in that, and I think he shows in this program how he brought that pastoral experience to these particular questions. You know, um, one thing that that they didn't directly address in in this episode but has been alluded to in some of the other episodes is that there are some bad actors who are really uh, aggressively pushing this sort of, of an ideology on our culture. Um, but the overwhelming majority of people who find themselves entangled in this whole deal one way or another, we can't pastorally or just as Christians lose sight of the fact that they're the real victims of all of this. Right. And he, uh, a number of the speakers brought that out, Ryan Anderson in the first one, talking about the evolution of the gender ideology and how within the, you might call the sex positive movement, the the gay movement and all of those people, the, the feminists who wanted to assert, uh, you know, uh, the, the role of, of women is more than, you know, uh, Kuchen and Cook and, and Cook, um, however the Germans put that, you know, the kitchen and the church, Kierke, uh, Kuchen and Kierke. And so all of those things have, now there are fights going on within that movement because the transgenderism is quite a break with reality. For them, they saw themselves as, you know, affirming the, the personal nature of woman and getting that dignity uh, uh, affirmed by the culture or that in homosexuality, which is something nobody goes looking to become generally, but we don't know all of the etiology of it, but we know that it represents a burden to, uh, to many such individuals. Whereas this is something quite different, and I th- you, you sort of pointed to it immediately, and that is that here you have individuals who are out there creating 
which uh, one of the authors, uh, Mary Maria Keffler, pointed out, essentially creating a cult around this ideology of one's own personal bodily identity, as if we create that. And this has become the religion, and it has all those aspects of the cult to it. Uh, and that is, it's an enclosed group. It faces outward against everyone who is opposed to that. And so we, we've seen that developed over a, a very long time, and I think each of the different speakers this week have, have uh, addressed that. And Father, of course, in recognizing that, uh, as you said, people get drawn into this by these aggressive movements, uh, they really are the lost sheep who need to be rescued, to be protected uh, or rescued, to be protected in order to prevent them falling into it, children especially, or rescued from it. And I thought our own Deacon Lampert of the Diocese of Birmingham brought this out beautifully in describing how what was invented, the puberty blockers, as a care for young girls with precocious puberty to stop that is now being used to chemically and uh, change the nature of the body completely. And that turns the child into a victim here where others, schools, who teacher who affirms them in, you know, as a transgender, or where parents who simply go along and say, oh, I have to, parent, we must always affirm our children regardless, you know, regardless of what's involved, that they essentially become the victims of the adults in their lives. And as the deacon pointed out, what used to be a problem of confusion in prepubescent boys, in 80% wise, is now in pubescent and adolescent girls who are seeking, of course, to discover themselves, to grapple with the nature of their changing bodies, and they are becoming victims of the vultures that are preying on them and getting into these lifelong medical practice procedures and drugs who are telling them they're special and they're special because they get to choose their sexual identity. And so, unlike the gay movement, which sought primarily to say, don't oppress us, we, want, we just want to be able to do what we feel called to do, this is a movement which not only victimizes children, but then it also grabs the law and the culture to continue itself, to perpetuate itself, and to bring about changes in the law and the culture which makes everybody who disagrees with them their enemy. And I think that's one of the ways in which you see clearly that it's a cult, that it's, it's an interior focus group that is not at all interested in identifying anything other than its enemies who do not agree with its positions and with its views and, and to attack them. And so in, in pastorally dealing with the individual in that situation, you ha I think you have to look at it from the point of view that, as priests, I think, generally do, and that is that I have standing before me uh, an individual who uh, perhaps they're confused, but we don't assume that they have chosen an evil, but rather that they need light, uh, they need grace to help to overcome it. Uh, they need affirmation of what is true and positive in human dignity or in the sexual distinction in this case. 
and to walk with them in that journey pastorally. And I think that, you know, the as we were saying, in the, in the Good Shepherd approach, uh, looking at this from the point of view of the Good Shepherd, the only people Christ ever scolded were the Pharisees because they knew what they were doing, they understood why they should do it, and they looked down their noses at everybody else. We can't approach people that way. And I think more so in this case than almost any other situation because, as you said, we're dealing with, in most cases with victims here, victims of the culture, victims of adults, victims of their own adolescent confusion, which every you know, child goes through as they're trying to understand you know, who they are as an adult, male or female, and, and, and where that will lead them in life and what choices are before, lay before them. And in the midst of that, somebody preys on them. And so I think the pastoral situation here is a lot clearer than it is with the, uh, the homosexual or other, other sins, the uh, adultery or fornication or that, uh, because here you have people who are, as you said, largely victims, and they need to be rescued out of that situation. Uh, you know, you mentioned this in a couple different fronts in that last little uh, response that you gave, but I thought that Father did a really nice job, and it's something I hadn't really thought about deeply enough. You know, it certainly resonated true to me as soon as I heard it, but, but and that is the, the distinction between affirmation and acceptance. I thought he did a very thorough and, and nice job of, of pointing out the, dif- the difference. Right, and I think that it, the other the other element which he also mentioned goes along this is to speak the truth. You know, if you're trying to affirm somebody, what are you going to affirm them in? Um, you can affirm them in some lie that they hold, or you can uh, affirm them in their their native dignity as a human person, as a male or a female, and so always. We accept people in love, but we don't affirm any evil that they do in their life. Uh, And I think the example of Christ, which we've talked about, uh, the example of how to approach sinners in generally, which the Pope talks a a good deal about, uh, these are ways in which we can make a proper distinction between loving the individual or, or as the uh, the old expression used to go, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. Well, we, we, we don't assume that the person is maybe clear enough in their mind, in their consciences as to what they're doing, and so we're loving them to bring them the light and the truth and to accept them as they are, but realizing not to leave them in that state, uh, to bring them out of that. And there, there's a beautiful, um, a beautiful view of that, I think, which applies to the gender ideology in a couple different ways, and that is in his encyclical on divine mercy, Dives in Misericordia, Pope John Paul II talks about the way that God loves us, and he re- relates that to the sexual distinction, which is how it applies generally to us in our relationship with God, but also to this particular case in, in a special way. And that is the steadfastness of the commitment that having created us, he has this commitment that he, he, he seeks to keep and he seeks to restore. 
And so those are two things. There is sort of the masculine way of dealing love uh, in loving in that steadfastness to the commitment because we've poured our whole self. It's, in a way, it's, a, it's about oneself because we poured our whole self into the commitment as a parent does with his child, as a husband and wife do with each other. We've poured ourselves in and we're going to stay steadfastly to that. That's a particular masculine sort of... Uh, you might say, being on task, if you will. I've got a task. I'm going to do it. Don't anyone deter me from, from this task that I'm doing. Then the other aspect of that, he says, is how do you then restore that commitment? How do you nurture the person that you are in covenant with, whether husband, spouses with each other or parents with their children? And that is he uses a feminine way of speaking, uh, the womb love, rahamim. And this is what the mother does, and that is it's, it's the grace of restoring a person. So the male dimension is to seek out and to always be committed and on task, as it were, in pursuing the loved one. The mother is the one who nurtures and cares and raises up. And so both of those elements have to be present in the pastoral side because we have to image Christ's approach and, of course, we know that Christ imaged the Father's approach. And so in Dives and Misericordia, he was writing about the Father in relationship to the cre- creature. And so through Christ, we see that. And we should see it through the church. And the church then gives for us a model of how ourselves we should deal with that in, you know, in uh, accepting the person because we love them but not affirming them in something which is harmful and dangerous to them. And I thought it was very nice when he illustrated um, Our Lady at the foot of the cross. You know, and, and I think the, the, the distinction between affirmation and uh, acceptance was made very clear there. Right, because and and again that fits with the uh, what JP two said because it talks about the the fact that Mary was with the Lord from the beginning to the end of His journey, because that that was her maternal role, and so um, th- this also speaks to the way we should then act. We have to be with the person who is on the cross of confusion, the cross of identity crisis, and so on and not abandon them because we feel superior to them, because we're not confused and we know the right way, uh, but to stay with them and to lead them out of that. And I think that, that you know, as I say, the pastoral situation for the church is to model that Christ's love, which models in itself the love that the Father has for his creatures. And that's a hard thing to do because it's very easy to be dismissive of, of the persons involved in this ideology. But we're back to the victimhood. When you remember, we're largely speaking of victims here, and you've got institutions and you've got adults who are the perpetrators of that victimhood. It gives it a different characterization than, than a lot of the other cultural things that we see in our society today. You know, and, and 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 Father Philip really led into this whole discussion of of our ability to affirm people in their humanity without approving of their actions, sort of in response to that overarching uh, fear that he finds from both priests and lay people alike that they're afraid to say anything about this. 
uh, you know, because they're, they don't want to turn anybody away and they don't want to mm-hmm. create more of a problem than there already is there. But I thought it was really interesting that he said that, you know, we don't have to be talking about this issue with these people all the time. You know, we can have everyday conversations, especially with our loved ones that may find themselves in these situations, and that's not betraying the faith to do that. Right, and this is this is what has sometimes been called a pastoral gradual gradualism, which has a specific uh, dimension in the confessional. But I think it also goes back to this uh, a point um, of of being patient. Um, at one of the end of the programs, I think it was the the one uh, yesterday, uh, where she was talking about children that get into this cult like atmosphere. Uh, you know, she 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 speaks to that, and that we're, we're we don't have to, you know, be all always on on this as a target, because the roles of different the relationships are different. The relationships she talked about parents versus grandparents and aunts and uncles. Very often, other family members find themselves uh sort of on the outs the parents are there affirming it the school is affirming it and here they are the grandparents or the aunts or the uncles you know how do i deal with that so sometimes you just have to proceed progressively in other words gradually leading the person by stages to see the light where your actual direct comments about the evil that is at work here will have traction with them because we're all are going to waste what people say against the you know the authorities running around in our head, you know if the authority is God and the authority is the church, we're on good terms. We can talk frankly about church teaching, about moral things, and not with you know with any great concern regarding how the reaction will be. But if the authorities in people's head is the culture, then you have to break that down, and so. In the long tradition of the church, the moral theology tradition in particular, you have to see that prudence means that we are gauging the circumstances here, and as Father speaks about this, that we're determining in a particular case, well, where do we have to go? What do we have to say here in this circumstance? And it's not always going to be about the last thing we would say when we finally get there and we've convinced the person that the body is a reality, you know, that the body was created by God. That's a whole other barrier for a lot of people that, that, that we're talking about God and creation and, all, and so on. Uh, we, ha- we have to get over that. And for a lot of people today, especially in the church among Catholics, we have to undo the damage done by false theologies that have been perpetuated in the church for 40 and 50 years. That's a different kind of spiritual victimhood that has been going on where people have been led to believe that, you know, uh, essentially to be affirmed in their sins without any effort to get them to see the sinfulness of it and a way out of it. And so that you have to move progressively, gradually. And that means identifying what is, uh, what is needs correcting and working with the individual, even if it's in casual conversations, to enlighten. They may or may not give you any attention. You know, but like the gospel, uh, the gospel parable of the seeds, 
you sometimes place the seed and somebody else waters, and so it goes, and eventually it will have fruit. And we find that in the conversions of people to the faith. I think we'll find them in the conversions of people from this cult of gender ideology. So I think uh, that's, that's an important uh, consideration here. You know, and, and not to harp on, on negative things, but I think it's important that we really embrace the gravity of this situation because as many of the presenters this week have pointed out, you know, you're, you're taking individuals created in the image and likeness of God who by one means or another have entered into a place where they are doubting certain things. It's making them unhappy, in mm-hmm. many cases depressed. But these are people that are suffering with these conditions that have otherwise perfectly healthy bodies. Yeah. That in an attempt to address this temporary psychological situation, come out on the other side with mutilated, sterile bodies that are going to be in need of medical attention for the rest of their lives. Right, and I think Deacon Lappert uh, brought this out very clearly from the physician's point of view. Uh, and that is that this uh, this hooks them into lifelong medical care and lifelong pharmaceutical care. There are big. Not only is there those who are ideologically bought into this, who are driving it in the culture and in the law, but there's big money to be made in this business. Um, he pointed out that this started in 2008, or may have been Ryan Anderson that did this, with Boston College, where they started doing. Um, uh, this kind of thing back back in the 1980s, actually, Boston uh, Boston Children's Hospital, rather, and how now it's grown to over 70 transgender centers across the United States. So that means, on average, whether there actually is, but on average, there is there is more than one transgender in many states, and there is at least one in every state. Uh, so this this is big. This is big ideology, and it's big business, and it's big business. And these things are they're in cahoots with each other, uh, and you you have to be aware of this. And I think um, you know a couple of the presenters pointed out the dangers in the culture, the dangers to parents, the dangers in the public schools in most states, where parents think, well, no, my children is not being subject to this in the schools. Uh, but uh, as Mary pointed out in the in yesterday. You walk down the schools, down the hallways in the schools, and they are advertising everything is about transgender. Uh, are you an ally? Are you an ally of trans? If you're not transgender, are you an ally? Uh, this is in the. This is being worked into the curriculums, uh, and so it's it's like many other things today. They very they started out subtly, but now it's very upfront, and it's not only upfront; it's aggressive. And this is the danger to the whole church, really, not just to not just to families and their children, but it's a danger to the society as well because it wants to make everybody else conform to this perspective, um, and it furthers the goals uh, because these doing that furthers the goals of this gender ideology and the industry that has grown up around it. You know, and all throughout Europe and really the rest of the world, especially Scandinavia, they are slamming the brakes on on this stuff because they've seen over a longer period of time than we have uh, what the consequences are 
but it's still full speed ahead in America. It, it is, uh, I think, because in many ways the drivers in this are in the United States. You think of Hollywood and the, the movie industry, the music industry, the culture in general. Um, the education establishment is all in for this. Um, you know, but yeah, this, this is a, a point that I forget which presenter made it, that the, it might have been the deacon, that watchful waiting, which was the, the approach prior to the, the, the last uh, couple decades, where they let children grow out of what most cases were boys anyway. With oftentimes the help of some therapy and family therapy. That's but right. But to the tune of 94% success, right? Right, exactly. In the end, there were would be a few, you know, boys who maybe went on and still wanted to cross-dress and live as if they were girls. Whereas today, the, first of all, it's flipped entirely. It's overwhelmingly girls. And unfortunately with girls, uh, and uh, one of the presenters noted that, um, you know, the, the changes that are done to them make it very medically difficult to correct, um, you know, whether they are, you know, have breasts removed or other things. And there is, that's all evil enough, but the movement to a non-gendered body, which was mentioned in that context as well, as a surgical procedure where you come out completely neuter, as it were, uh, out of that surgery. I, I mean, this is an unbelievable uh, uh, medical and parental malfeasance to allow that kind of thing to take place. Well, we certainly thank you for tuning in this week for this EWTN Open Line special event, uh, the transgender movement, what Catholics need to know. Uh, and we urge everybody to, to uh, reserve compassion in your hearts for people that find themselves in these situations, and, uh, but to stand firm. And out of the love of our Lord for each and every one of them, uh, we would encourage you to uh, be firm but, but maintain the compassion of, of the one that we follow. For more resources on this topic uh, across many different platforms, uh, you can log on to EWTN.com slash Hassan. That's H-A-S-S-O-N. So lots of resources at EWTN.com slash Hassan. Thanks for tuning in for this week, and God bless.